That's uh, impressive. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, you know what? It's really great to be with you, and, and um, I love worshiping with you guys. Isn't that great? Um, just hear people singing out, this is my story, this is my song. Um, so thank you for inspiring me to follow Jesus and walk with him this morning. I hope that when we're spending time in God's word together, that you'll be inspired as well. Um, and that would be nothing to do with me and everything to do with God's spirit, right? So uh, we're praying that direction. This morning, I mentioned that I would, um, I invited people to ask some questions. I'm going to begin the message with some of those questions. Then we're going to dive into Revelation chapter 13 and all of its complexities and interesting stuff that goes on there. And we're going to take communion together, which is, of course, the statement that Jesus Christ has loved us, given himself for us. We celebrate his sacrifice for us that we might be sure and confident that we're in him and that we have eternal life. So some of the questions, um, just four of them this morning. And again, if you have questions, I would love to invite you to ask your questions and we'll try to address them as we can as we on keep going through Revelation. So here's the first question. Why do I still feel inadequate even after receiving Christ? I, I really actually really appreciated the honesty of this question. Uh, why do I still feel inadequate even after receiving Christ? So, um, part of the message of Revelation and, of course, of Scripture is that we have an adversary. First right? Peter 5 tells us that we have an adversary, his name is Satan, who seeks to devour us like a roaring lion, seeks to bring discouragement, to bring deception into us. We're going to see that in Revelation 13 this morning. He seeks to deceive us and deceive the world. And part of that feeling of inadequacy comes from there. Um, Of course, there's a healthy part of my inadequacy, and that is that I am inadequate, except for the adequacy I find in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wanted to get a little layer deeper here for the person who wrote this, and many of you actually who have felt this feeling, the feelings of inadequacy in our faith. Does God really still love me even though I still fail him? And am I really truly secure in my faith? And um, what about all the things, the way I fail as a parent or as a child, as a student, as someone at work? What about all that stuff? Um, part of it is rooted in my not being able to receive and understanding the powerful love of Christ for me. And that we were singing about that this morning, and I, I know I saw some of you, the expressions on your face are so priceless. But I think it's part of the reason why that Paul writes what he does in Ephesians chapter 1. And for you, I just wanted to pray this prayer over you, and I'm going to invite those of you who are believers, followers of Christ, just to in your heart as I'm reading out this prayer from Paul to pray it for the other believers here in the room who are feeling that strong um, attack that they are inadequate, that they are not Christ's or they don't really truly rest in him or he doesn't truly love them. This is the prayer that Paul prays over those believers. It's my prayer for you. Where Paul says, starting in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 1, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that, of course, is my prayer for you, that you would be able to just capture in your heart this morning, whoever wrote this, and those of us who feel those feelings of inadequacy, that you would feel the immeasurable love of God for you. And you would walk away from church this morning encouraged, strengthened with this sure knowledge, and not listening to this, the deceiver of your soul, but listening to the word of God. So um, if you want to continue that discussion about inadequacy, I'd love to talk with you. The other guys, on, men and women on staff, would love to talk with you about it, so feel free to make contact with us. Here's the next question. Is it, quote, absent from the body, they're quoting um, from Corinthians, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or are the dead in their graves until Jesus comes? So go ahead and tell your neighbor right now. Hey, you should be confident in this, right? So we had a memorial service um, right at Sunday for Greg Pons, one of our dear ushers who went to be with Jesus. And I say that really specifically like that. He is present with the Lord in this moment. He's no longer here in the tent of his body. His body is in the grave, but his spirit is present with the Lord. And that's what scripture teaches us. We are, as followers of Jesus, in the presence of the Lord when we die. Our bodies are not present in this moment, and they will be at one point resurrected. And how that happens after the worms have done their thing, or you've been cremated or whatever, is a work of God. Because he created you, he has a plan that he's going to restore and make all things new, and you're not going to have the, the same tent that you have right now. Isn't that good news? Right? You know what I'm saying? So um, it's going to be a perfect tent, and you'll be united. That's the plan of Scripture, at least according to God's Word for us. So I hope that brings some clarity to any part of confusion that might be there. Again, um, here's the next question. It, is there a holy trinity and an unholy trinity? So thank you very much for your question. Um, and if so, what makes up the unholy trinity? So here's, I see looks of consternation on some of your faces. Um, here is the truth of scripture. The word trinity, of course, is not used, but it's a descriptive word for God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one unity, blowing the brain cells that we have, right? And the mystery of the Godhead we have one God that's beyond our comprehension and mystery, but still seeks to be fully known. And this God, the God of the Bible, is what we call the Trinity God in perfect unity, three persons in perfect unity. But there is a, an evil and demented and deceptive um, 
picture of what Satan is doing. And in one sense, that's what some people have called the unholy trinity. And we're going to find a little bit of that as we get into Revelation chapter 13 this morning. It is Satan and the beast or the Antichrist and, and his sidekick or the false prophet. And they would be deceivers and completely inadequate in, in every way possible. They're weak imitations of the real thing. And they have the power, we're told, to deceive many in the last days. The tragic reality is that they're complete opposite from our God. They seek to destroy where God seeks to heal and bring restoration to us. They bring wreckage where God repairs and brings restoration. And they're driven ultimately by hate, where God is driven ultimately by an unfathomable love for us. Right, so... Um, Again, if you want more answers, I'd be happy to connect with that. And then one last question. This came from Sue Senadinas, who serves in our, um, in our nursery. And oftentimes, she can't hear everything that's being projected there you know, during the message. And um, so she turned, I, I mentioned this earlier, turned to her partner, and she said, did I miss the rapture? <laughs> and, I, and I just want to bless her and bless the people that are working in the nursery. No, you didn't miss the rapture. Now, um, here's the deal. You've heard us say that there are different perspectives about um, when God is going to take up the church. That word particular rapture is not specifically used in Scripture, but it's the imagery from 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read that in just a second so you can hear the words. Um, let me describe it this way. First, Jesus said, no man will know the time or the hour. So if someone comes to you and says, I know it. I just discovered it. I did the, the numbers in Scripture, and I, I want to tell Fritz, and I, I want to tell other people I've got the answer, all right? Um, you know what? To tell them they're full of it, right? They're, they don't know what they're talking about because Jesus himself said in the mystery of the Godhead again, don't know the hour, I, right? So no man knows the hour or the time. But um, the question is, when in the flow of history does the rapture happen? Does God take his church? And the, there are some specific answers to that. Some people believe that it happens before any of the great tribulation begins. That would be people who call themselves pre-tribulationalists. Um, there are some people who believe it happens right in the midpoint, three and a half years in. And some people believe that it happens at the very end of that seven years. And some people believe it it happens after um, the thousand-year reign that we see in Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read scripture just so you're encouraged and not completely confused, okay? And again, in our fellowship, there are people who take differing positions. I happen to believe that there's a preponderance of scripture that points one way, but I also hold it very open-handedly knowing that great theologians have taken different positions on this. And there are two things God calls us to today. Two things are, one, to be ready if he comes this instant. If he comes as you're driving home before you get to the football game or whatever you're going to do this afternoon, if he comes for you who are in Christ, that's really good news, right? It's not something to fear. If he comes, we ought to be ready, right? There's this image, a story that Jesus tells about lighting the lampstands. Be ready any moment. And Scripture also tells us very strongly to patiently endure and be faithful to the end. That's our call. Those two things we weigh, whether we have one position or another, 
we, we weigh those two things and we take those two things very seriously, okay? So here's the text that's alluded to there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn it over there and then we're going to jump into the text for this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I read this just for your encouragement. So you walk out of here strengthened. We'll start in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's using a euphemism for those who have died, right? That you may not grieve as others do, but who have hope. All right, but so um, again, the moral service we did for Greg this last Sunday, some people walked in those doors who had no relationship with Jesus. They had no hope. They felt maybe um, that if they die, things end right there, or there's some mystery that happens. You don't know what's going to go on. But Paul's writing for those of us who are in Christ to help us understand, we're not people without hope. We don't go to memorial service of the brother or sister in Jesus and despair. We go as people who have hope in the promises, the sure promises of God, right? So um, he has a future for us, and that's what Paul is writing into for those people who had been persecuted. So, so it says this, verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. God has a promise just as sure as the resurrection, the death and resurrection, he has a promise for those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That This is the plan of God. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right? Don't walk away from a study in Revelation about the end times and be discouraged and confused. Encourage one another with these words. There's blessing, Revelation says, when we study, read and heed the words, okay? Even though you might be struggling because it's, there's difficult words in here. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, 
Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is for your edification, for your building up, for encouragement, for strengthening. Okay? So with those things in mind, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. And this morning, because we want to get plenty of space for communion, we're going to move right along. And if you have questions afterwards, feel free to ask them. So, there's no other figures in the book of Revelation that have captured readers' imaginations more quite like the beast and the beast's sidekick here in Revelation 13. Which, when you think about it, just for a moment, when you step back and think about it, is crazy. Can I say that? If you get fascinated and uh, the one thing you're thinking about after this morning is the identity of these two characters, you miss the point of the book. Don't miss it. Revelation is, after all, the revealing of Jesus and his coming kingdom and his great work to make all things new. You've heard me say that before, right? And I'll keep saying it because that's the point. The point is the revealing of the, the amazing plan of God and who Jesus is and his plan for Bobby and in Chuck and his plan for Norm, his plan for, for me. And in the end, Jesus trounces the beast and the false prophet. That's the storyline that's being written, that it's Jesus that's full of honor and glory and power and authority and blessing, and he's our hope and our salvation. And the beast, no matter how he tries, is weak sauce imitation. That's the story, okay? So we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worth honoring. Yet, the subject has been having people guess their identity of this character and these two characters specifically for a long, long time. People want to know. And they want to know about the number. At the end of this chapter, there's a number for the beast, and his name is... Um, it's the number of man, and his number is 666. You've heard that probably before. In the first century, the first guess was Nero because he was persecuting believers, and they thought it was him. And then other later believers thought it was Domitian, the Roman emperor Domitian, because they started doing numerology with his name and figured out that equaled 666. There have been other guesses, of course, throughout the course of time, Muhammad and Oliver Cromwell and John Knox and Martin Luther and various popes and Adolf Hitler and Henry Kissinger and President Obama. Revelation 13 says, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. And there are a lot of people who have miscalculated and have become foolish in their miscalculation. To identify the person is not the point. Um, And then there's a challenge at the end of this chapter to calculate this number that has drawn all these chorus of responses down through the time. A lot of churches have split over this, and there have been raging controversies over this number, and people have gotten dogmatic and dug in and done a lot of stupid things. Please don't. Please don't. So what does the word say? Revelation 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. So we've seen that 
The multiple horns and heads and diadems are pictures of power and authority. And this beast rises out of this sea, which typically in the imagery of Scripture is a sea of humanity. This thing we know specifically is powerful, and it's an anti-Jesus or anti-Christ force. And he comes from the sea. Verse 2 And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, and its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And I was going to show this this stream of pictures that people have drawn of this thing, which are wildly imaginative and creative, and you can go online and take a look at them yourself, but... um, it's just confusing, I think. It's not really, it's, it's imagery. This is symbolism that's being written about. But what we know is it sounds like this compilation of another prophecy that was given by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. It sounds like a compilation of, of that beast. And the power of the beast, we know specifically from this verse, comes from Satan himself. That's the dragon that was defined in Revelation chapter 12. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So what happens to this character is, it seems like he dies and then rises again. Again, Satan's agenda has always been to deceive and to imitate, be the false imitator of Christ. And so the whole earth is deceived. I don't I don't know how, I don't know the details of how this is going to happen, but the whole earth buys into this deception, except those who have faith in Christ, because there are people in the moment who believe in Christ. And they worshiped the dragon, that is, the earth starts to worship Satan himself. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who's like the beast and who can fight against it? The answer is... Yeah, just say the whole, just say the church answer, right? The church says, who can fight against it? Jesus, right? That's, and Jesus wins it, right? But this, this whole mass of humanity starts following it and thinking there's nothing better that's ever come along. And somehow, except for the followers of Jesus, the whole earth buys in and starts worshiping the beast. This is the story that's written out in scripture that's going to happen. And the beast was given a month uttering, a mouth, I'm sorry, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, verse 5, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So the beast reigns for roughly half of the great tribulation period and seeks to take God's place. He blasphemes the God of heaven and tries to elevate himself to God's place. And that's always been Satan's agenda from the beginning of time, And he's doing it now through the beast. Verse 6. And opened his mouth to other blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, so there's no distinction. The whole earth is affected, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. On this day, 
The battle lines are clearly drawn. And everyone on earth, with no exception, will either worship Jesus or this beast. Everyone. One is a deceiver and a destroyer. One is a giver of life. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the core text, I think, the, the core message of this chapter. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, for the encouragement for people to hold on, for them to know what's going to happen. And when it happens, to understand God is still in charge. He still, still rules and reigns. So, if you have an old school Bible, a literal text here with you, you might want to underline that phrase because that's core to it. Verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. That is, it spoke deceptively like Satan. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. That's why it's called a false prophet whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lives. So a false idol is crafted. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and the number is 666. So the beast comes up from the sea, and it is a tool used by Satan to accomplish his attack on believers and to deceive the world and to gain worship of the world for Satan himself. The most conspicuous biblical reference point for John's beast in the sea is Daniel and Daniel's dream of these four great beasts in Daniel 7, 1 through 7. John's vision, in the order of John's vision, um, the first of the three is kind of reversed. It goes leopard, bear, lion, as we picture this in, here in Revelation 13. And Daniel's four beasts have been kind of rolled into one terrible beast. It's imagery that's helping us understand the power of this one to come and to corrupt and deceive the world. And the beast's agenda corresponds to that of the dragon to deceive the whole world and to lead people into worship of Satan and himself. And his authority lasts for 42 months, we're told, and extends to all the inhabitants of the earth. The dragon also has a, another goal, and that is to persecute believers, to bring persecution and even death to believers. But again, as we even talked about just a few minutes ago, for me, my physical death simply means to be present with the Lord. 
And Paul is speaking powerful words into these believers, first century believers, who are persecuted and losing their lives so that they might endure, have endurance, and hold on. So, then he turns the discussion a little bit and speaks to those who are going into captivity. It's a reference to Jeremiah 15, 2. It's those destined for death to death, and those for the sword, the sword, and those for starvation, starvation, the captivity, captivity. It's a reference to the, um, to the apocalypse that's going to happen, the end times Jeremiah is giving. So what do we make of all this? Beside, I wonder who it is. Well, first and foremost, let me just speak it out because this is not a call to arms or a call to point fingers at one person or one figure that we see. This is specifically a call, as the word tells us, for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Why? How does that connect to what we just see in Revelation 13? Because in the story of Revelation, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's why we can be patient and endure the horrors that will come. Why? Because in Christ there's victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. That, that should get some kind of amen, right? I thought for those of you men that went on like retreat, that Brian had like helped you out with some of that, he'd like get some of that. So the battle belongs to the Lord. He is victorious and that's what points us to endurance, knowing that there will be difficult times to come. And that's okay. For the present, John is saying there's going to be a limit on this beast's authority and his rule. So how do we respond to this? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, It's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And that, again, is the story of Revelation. That God wins, and he's going to take the battle. It's not mine. I don't fight that battle. I don't have to fear it. I don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen in in the future. I can rest in the sure knowledge that God wins, and this is his battle. On the contrary, Ashley says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our response as we see evil in the world and as evil escalates is to live for the Lord, to be good and to imitate Christ, to love others, even those who are opposed to us. So, That's how the believer is called to respond. In the power of the Lord, he's going to go before us. We remember, too, Christ's warning. Christ himself warned that there would be false prophets, people that would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves, Matthew 7, 15. And that there's a specific one who will have great authority and bring great deception into the world. And there will be a second earthly beast found here in Revelation 13 who will do awesome, seeming miraculous things that we're warned about. But God will still win the victory. That's the story. Now listen to the words for you, given for you, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that makes some connection here for us. Hopefully this will start to make sense. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This passage, I believe, is referring to exactly what's happening in Revelation 13. Who opposes and exalts himself up against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. God is the restrainer. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work in our world, right? We see it in the tragedies that happen every week. We see evil in our world. It's, a, it's an expression of Satan's work, and yet he's being restrained until the last days in part. For the mystery, verse 7, of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring, noth- and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This is a moment when scripture speaks here that should be feared for those who reject Christ. It's a warning for those, a serious warning that they will be deceived and they will buy into deception and the destruction to come. So, the lawless one will come by the activity of Satan with all his power and false signs and wonders. And verse 10 says, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. And that's the point of it. To embrace and love the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come and died for us and risen again. And so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false and in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They take their joy in what is not righteous and holy and good. But brothers and sisters, we are not those without hope. Right? We're people with great hope that we have been saved because of the truth and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and who died for us and who rose again. This Lamb of God who came for us. And the story painted from the very beginning of Scripture is a story of salvation, redemption. For those of us who are fallen and wrecked and full of sin, God weaves this story of saving us, rescuing us from the beginning of time. And here in Revelation 13, where this satanic kind of trinity, but false trinity, starts to operate and deceive people and create all this false worship, will be brought to naught because the Lord God wins this battle. And the beast and the false prophet, they only have authority for this brief moment of time and space and time in history. A very small dot in the line of history into eternity 
where God rules and reigns. So that forces us to ask a question. Who is Lord? Forces every person to ask the question, who's the Lord? Is it this false deceiving one or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Christians in the first century had to make a public choice every year, declaring either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. And many of them died because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. In the future one day, there will be others who will lose their life because they will not worship the beast. Today, we have the same choice, same exact choice, whether to worship ourselves or the deceiver, Satan himself, or to worship Jesus as Lord. Will we today not only say it, but live like Jesus is Lord? That's the point of the scripture. And in doing so, will we endure patiently and faithfully to the end? The Bible tells us that many will be fooled and follow false deception. They'll follow a lie and a liar and exchange the truth and love of God for deception. Please don't let that be you. That's not God's desires. His wisdom for you is to take heart, to know that the battle belongs to the Lord and that Christ Jesus is the Lord of all. And with that in mind, we get to celebrate that in communion. Again, if you have questions, if this sparks some questions, feel free to email. Um, We'll be happy to talk about it more. The scripture's great truth for us is though these horrible days are coming, greater days yet are in store. And even in the the storm, hold on to the Lord because he is faithful and true. He's coming for us. We have no fear. Uh, Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for the power of the truth of your word, even times where it becomes confusing to us. I pray you would plow through that, make the reality of the coming of Jesus clear for us. Help us to long for that, for it to shape the way we live our lives this week, and to be secure in this, knowing that we will not be deceived if we're in the truth, in you, that you will protect us, and that we will not be walking through wrath. You're going to save us from wrath. So we pray these things in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.